Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. We are very excited for our third season, and thank you very much indeed for coming along with us. My name is Scott Powell, and I'm joined, as always, by my brother in reading, my cousin from across the pond in Canada, Joshua Taylor. Hello. Yeah, Josh, exciting times, hey? We've got a, a new season, a new focus coming out the back of our Philip Marlowe work. We're going to look at a sort of sampling and dip our toes in the water of a lot of first books in series, I guess we could say. Yeah, that. like a survey of, of uh, all the great mystery novels and detective characters out there. And it might, you know, uh, yeah. open up some interest in particular series so that we ourselves can branch off in that way if we wanted to, either on the show or even, you know, personally. Yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of part of the premise this year, or this season, wasn't it? We, we've come off two really big deep dives, first with the Holmes, then with the Philip Marlowe, and we wanted to kind of branch out a little bit uh, for ourselves and for our listeners, uh, just to do a, a smorgasbord. A smorgasbord. A cornucopia of crime. Yes, I believe you called it that in the last episode. Did I call it that? I think you just made that up. And then, and then you gave yourself credit. No, 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 no. Gave me no, no. credit for it. But really, you're going to say, I created that. <laughs> no. And, and, you're, and uh, you're going to own it. But you know that I was the one that came up with that. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> well, look, everybody, we are really happy to be here. And although we're still locked down, um, there's light coming on the horizon, hopefully. And wherever you are listening from, we hope that you're safe and closer to getting a vaccine and re-entering the world properly because, um, you know, after doing everything we can, we're starting to kick COVID in the butt. It's going to take some time, but uh, slowly but surely, keep doing the right things and we'll be getting back. Or right in there. nerdy literary terms, Frodo is at the gates of Mount Doom right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. That's that's a deep dive, man. That's, that's what that is. Anyway, so today's focus is... Today's focus is all about the Silver Pigs. We're going to be looking at the first Didius Falco novel by Lindsay Davis. And uh, fans of historical fiction, fans of crime literature, and you might even say fans of the Philip Marlowe series by Raymond Chandler might find themselves quite at home in this one. Yeah, it, it definitely appeals to multiple genres and multiple interests, that's for sure. I mean, the main reason I think we went for this one first is because uh, our personal interest that we share together, uh, a personal interest and passion that we share together of ancient Rome in particular. I mean, I'm very, when it comes to history, I mean, I love all aspects of history, ancient Rome, classical Greece, uh, medieval uh, Europe, European history, uh, the Civil War, even modern, you know, Cold War, World War II. I love all that stuff. But uh, in particular, though, me and you, like, we kind of bonded together on the Roman stuff for sure. And that's because I sent you a copy of this doorstopper uh, of a novel called The First Man in Rome by <laughs> Colleen McCullough. Now, for those of you who don't know mm -hmm. Colleen McCullough, she wrote um, The Thornbirds, which is a very well-known romance historical series, I guess you, you could say. Oh, yeah, very much. Yeah, it is a historical story. But really, um, what I think is probably her best work, and I think that um, a lot of people don't know about is she wrote this fantastic historical fiction series called The Masters of Rome. And if you loved I, Claudius by Robert Graves, uh, you would definitely pick up on this series for sure. Probably not as wittily written as, say, you know, Robert Graves or condensed into a, fine, into a I guess, a more taut format as his stuff. Uh, but McCullough basically covers the fall of the Roman Republic from essentially the birth of Julius Caesar 
all the way to his death and a little bit afterwards, establishing Octavian as Augustus by 27 BC. And so this is essentially like the birth of the Roman Empire, seen through the first couple of books of uh, the rivalry between Marius and Sulla, the factionalism that developed, and then the rise of Caesar, the civil war, and all that follows. So it was a very, uh, it was a period that we really got together on. And we even went to Rome on my first sojourn to Europe. Uh, we went to Rome together uh, back in 2007, was it? That's, yeah. that's right, 2007. 2007, yeah. yeah. We went to Rome together for eight days and... Uh, we pretty much explored that place without a tour guide, eh? <laughs> yeah, we did really well. I think it was a fantastic trip. But uh, if I could just pull you back before the trip to this um, to this gift of Colleen McCullough. You know, Josh and I grew up as cousins in Canada, uh, sending each other all sorts of missives and letters and comics and books as from, from the time we, we first knew each other as little kids when we did live in the same city. And then when we uh, moved apart, we kept up the snail mail communication, and it was awesome. And it, uh, you know, it, it helped uh, it helped fire our interests and kind of fuel our our um, our passions, as you say, whether media or books or whatever. And I think once we were a little bit later on, because let's face it, it was uh, I must have been sixteen or seventeen when you sent me McCullough's. Um, maybe not quite that. Maybe maybe I was. No, nah, maybe I was about eighteen, 18 or nineteen yeah, when I think you, you sent were at me high first, school. first yeah. man in Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was out of high school and um, that, that came my way. And it, I remember receiving it, you know, it had one of those, um, it had that great colorful red, bright um, illustrated front with, um, you know, with, with Roman figures decorated in them. I don't remember who was on them now, but surely it would have been Marius or Sulla or some artist rendition yes. thereof. And I remember Colleen McCullough, you know, written in that sort of raised as was the case in a lot of 80s and 90s publications, you know, because it was 90s, wasn't it? That came out uh, 1990, I think, first first edition of that was printed. The uh, paperback um, one, yeah. That, yeah, the paperback one, yeah. Anyway, I remember receiving that and thinking, wow, this is what he's into now. Um, okay, now we had, we had shared and still share our interest in James Bond um, and, we, and the X-Files and things like that. But when this book arrived, I knew that, you had already read it and you were a couple of books ahead of me in, in terms of like deep diving historical fiction, uh, really interested in Rome, really interested in the little side project you had when you, as you were writing your own stories about ancient Rome and, and sort of, uh, Neo Rome in the future. And all of that stuff was really cool, but this book arrived and boy, it, it was, it's a tome, a weighty tome, as you say, a doorstop. And I didn't think I was going to be capable of getting through it, but I did get through it. And I'm so glad that I did because it propelled me on to read the rest of the masters of Rome series wherein you and I shared quite a bit of uh, of reading experience. Mm -hmm. And of course, that led us on to um, all sorts of film and other media kind of interests. And then, yeah, in 2007, after I moved here to Scotland, we took that trip to Rome and boy, we exhausted that city in in the eight days. We didn't go for... um, we didn't go for the spa treatments. We we got on the bikes and, and rode the Via oh, Appia. We stopped along the very the, you sore know, bottoms. Uh, very sore bottoms, but uh, lots of blisters. Great experience, especially when I was and, breaking in my new kids. Uh-huh. That was stupid. <laughs> yeah, breaking your new kids on the cobblestone yeah, was, streets yeah. of Rome, Josh. That's brilliant. Just freaking brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> now I know uh, what Didier Falco feels like and, wandering through the streets, yeah. being chased at by bully boys and hiding in brothels and stables and uh-huh. stuff like that. 
And no arch support for his shoes, let me tell you what. Definitely not. They probably had the standard Cal. He probably had the standard no. Caligai, most likely. I, I was I, Caligai. With like probably, the wood, yeah. with just like the wood base and then and, and the thong, and that's about it. No, no, no. They don't have the thongs. They have just like, mm-hmm. it's all like roped up or kind of like, it's like a mesh. Woven. Woven, yeah. It's like a leather mm-hmm. uh, woven kind of thing. But anyways, yeah, so we, we really right. love Ancient Rome. And so, and, you know, we also loved, for example, the HBO series Rome. That was another one that we shared together, too. I, I got him into. Mm-hmm. Sure, and, yeah. um, and of course, I, Claudius. I, we read that together, Robert Gray's I, Claudius. And we mm-hmm. loved the uh, BBC miniseries, of course, with Derek Jacoby and Sean Phillips and mm-hmm. Brian Blessed and John Hurt and all the gang. Patrick, Patrick Stewart. Stewart. <laughs> you don't forget him. Uh, and so, you know, I just felt like, you know, for our eclectic, season on on the mystery novels and the great detectives let's take a look at didius falco let's see what he's all about Mm -hmm. and i think it was a a really inspired choice um not to say anything yet about you know our pipes for this Mm -hmm. book or my my feelings on it but i thought it was an inspired choice because um lindsay davis has written a very long and popular series 20 books now i believe and still writing 20 books it's it's incredible It's incredible. And that, that character's arc is one that begins here with the Silver Pigs. So if you are a fan of historical fiction, if you're a fan of crime fiction, uh, put the two together, join us along the way. And um, if you've read the book, well, we hope you find our review of it um, interesting or controversial or, or whatever. It's, it's, our turn, it's our turn to share with you our thoughts on this. So uh, without any further ado, Josh, uh, I think before we get into your plot summary, let's share a little bit of information on the author here, Lindsay Davis. All right. So what I gleaned uh, from various sources, Davis was born in 1949 in Birmingham, England. Uh, she was educated at Oxford, but she became a civil servant. Once, you know, that kind of played itself out in her life, she decided to pursue her passions, which was archaeology and history, and uh, she just wanted to be a writer. Uh, Her first novel was unpublished. It was called The Course of Honor. Now, if you're familiar with Roman civilization or society, this, of course, refers to, similarly to the Ladder of Honor, or what's called the Cursus Honorum. And this is basically that, Mm -hmm. that ranking of how, as as a is what I guess a, a Roman, a nobleman as a young man would do to climb the political ladder going from at the bottom, the quaestorship, all the way up, you know, to praetor and then consul, essentially. And that was called the Cursus yeah. Honorum. So that was that, that's where the name of the book comes from. But interestingly, uh, which fits the, the setting of the Silver Pigs, it was a story about Vespasian, uh, the soldier turned emperor that was pretty much the guy that resolved the year of the four emperors after Nero's death, which was a civil war, basically. And this is all about his affair with a, or sorry, this is all about him and his mistress, Antonio Kynas. And that was, but it was never published. But the basis of this story was then used uh, to publish, uh, to, to go at her second attempt at getting a novel published. And this eventually became The Silver Pigs. And then from then on, she became like a mystery writer, essentially. And she developed a huge, you know, Mm -hmm. 20 book series, as we discussed. Uh, Incidentally, she also publishes a series of novels about the English Civil War, you know, like the Roundheads versus the Cavaliers, Cromwell and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And before we get any further on that, your your mention of the, the British history. It's just made me think about our, our most recent James or our most recent Bond by Numbers episode where you went through the spy master's life, um, Walsingham. Oh, yes, Francis of course. Walsingham. And anybody, 
anybody who's uh, interested in English history and wants to sort of go back to um, the blueprint of James Bond and MI6 might want to check out that episode. We had a lot of fun listening to you, Jeff and I, <laughs> listening to you uh, take us through that little history in our double O origins. So it's, it's partly a shameless plug, but also partly connected to what it is we're, we're talking about here with Lindsay Davis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It passions and and history and archaeology and 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 similar subjects. Uh, I guess we definitely have that in common. I suppose, uh, like these books weren't bestsellers per se. I mean, they were in their genre, uh, but uh, she has over twenty of them, and she still writes them. I read that uh, she did have a corneal implant because her eyesight was fading, so that's been replaced. She was, it was donated actually. Um, so she's she's very open mm-hmm. uh, voice when she talks about you know carrying a donor card and being proud of stuff like that uh she has Mm -hmm. a very interesting relationship with her fandom she doesn't like fan fiction at all and uh and whenever she has like suggestions to do so or do certain things and she says no i want to do it this certain way so she's very clear about that um it seems like a very interesting character just based on her opening notes of her book of the especially of the edition that i have Mm -hmm. and also of uh, just the things that i read about her in in general she kind of feels like a Colleen McCullough type to me, just in the way that she talks about herself and the subject as well. So, you know, I... I, I yeah, that's that's an interesting observation. So I think that's kind of what sort of pulled me into this book. Now, of course, we'll break this book down in our pipes on what we really thought about it as a whole, despite our interest in the, in the time period that it takes place in. Uh, but it's a good gateway drug into that world that she's conveying mm-hmm. in, in this story. It is, yeah. And I think it's important, although because we're talking about McCulloch here, I think it's important at the outset to say that while these two uh, female writers and historical fiction enthusiasts, while they may very well have met together and admired each other's work, I I really don't know anything about uh, their personal Mm -hmm. lives in that way. Uh, These books were published very closely together. Um, The Silver Pigs does predate uh, the First Man in Rome by a few months. I know this was published in 1989. The copy I'm looking at, uh, the one that I had, Josh, is a 1990 pan paperback mm-hmm. edition. Um, the one it, you it's have, a much, it's is, a much later one. It's um, it's Minotaur Books, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm just showing the picture to Scott there, and you can see it's a much more modern, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, reprint, reprint, yeah. yeah. It's, for sure. It's almost like bigger size, large print one too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly bigger than what I'm dealing with. Uh, but the, the reason I mentioned that, Josh, is just because I don't think these two writers, though they're both very well versed and uh, educated in, in this world and in their research, I don't think McCulloch and Lindsay Davis have anything like the same objective or purpose or authorial intent in producing no. their works. McCulloch is looking to do a grand sweep, an epic sweep over a number of books of the late Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire, whereas here we are already firmly in yes. the empire, just following, or just, just after the year of the Four Caesars, and we have uh, one character who is that sort of um, off-the-cuff detective, uh, I should say, he's, he's, he's an informer. He's an informer. Not, not a detective, detective. yeah. I think that's That's a word that she uses to kind of separate him from that genre Mm -hmm. because she wants to make him believable, Mm -hmm. I guess, in the world that he lives in. I did enjoy the mention, you know, about like, you know, uh, certain things personally, you know, as stuff I've been working on as a writer and stuff about, as we talked about, I have a story that I've been working Mm -hmm. on about a a futuristic version of Rome in the modern, in, you know, on the Western Hemisphere, in the other side of the Western Hemisphere, i.e. the New World Mm -hmm. here. And uh, 
we talk mm-hmm. about, you know, the Vigiles who were like the urban cohort of Rome who were like the policemen essentially, right? And here they're pretty much portrayed like the NYPD or, you know, like there's even a scene where they're at a crime scene and they're, they're you know, like just how she describes a crime scene where a body is found and stuff. It just feels like, you know, they might as well just, Falco just might as well just like go right under the yellow tape, you know what I mean? And uh, get his visitor pass, you know? Like it's like Castle visiting, you know, Beckett on the scene of the crime, right? So it, it just kind of, it just, that, yeah. there is that element that it feels, you know, like she's kind of doing a procedural here, but set in this world. I, mm-hmm. now, I've always been really, I'm, as, you know, we talked about McCullough and uh, the rise of Caesar, I, Claudius, I'm very well versed in, you know, the Julian Claudian dynasty, you know, from Augustus all the way to Nero. I'm very familiar with that. Uh, mostly a lot of historically, even people who know a little bit about the history are very familiar with that. But I found that her choice of doing this during the Flavian dynasty, you know, from the 70s AD to the 80s AD, going all the way to Domitian, uh, uh, apparently, I was worried by the end of the series that they're at now, like Domitian is now emperor, which is very substantial given, you know, his role in uh, the Silver Pigs, right? So it's a very interesting period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the so. things that a lot of people don't know, a fun fact about the Flavian dynasty uh it was Vespasian and his son Titus that commissioned the what's known as the Flavian Amphitheater, which is the Colosseum. Mm-hmm. So That's this right. is really yeah, the Colosseum that still stands. So after yeah. you know, this is, for historical context, this is kind of like the beginning of Imperial Rome at its height under the Flavian uh, dynasty, because soon you're going to go into the big mm-hmm. players like Trajan and Hadrian, the big you know expansionists, right? So this is the time of huge yeah. birth of the Roman Empire, all the way up until I guess you could say. Constantine, when whole things change, when the Christianity starts taking over and stuff like that. That's right. right. But I do, I do wonder, Josh, if perhaps part of Davis's um, want in setting it when she did within the Flavian dynasty is because you, I, we've been there, but many others who have been there or will go to Rome can see a lot of these sites that still mm-hmm. exist as ruins or like, as like monuments. We saw the to Golden House time. when we were yeah. there, right? Nero's, what was left of the Nero's. Golden yeah, House. of course. Yeah. I remember wondering, yeah. what is yeah. that building? Is that part of the Palatine? We weren't quite sure, but then we realized that it's like the, the it was the, the remnants of his Golden House because it's right there, like at the base under uh, the base of the Palatine, like just before you get to the Circus mm-hmm. Maximus, you know. So we always wondered what that building was. That's right. Yeah, I still find it funny that the Circus Maximus is basically a dog park now, though. I, I find that really amusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that uh, the the site of. Um, the site of Pompey's statue and theater was uh, is really where, where Caesar died. It's actually just a place for cats yeah, to hang out. Yeah. Pretty much, they're they're still fighting their anyway. We're, we're, we're getting there, and we are getting off track. Yeah, but we just thought we'd give you some some <laughs> we, information we on the author and also historical concepts of where it takes place. This is the Roman Empire in the, the beginning of the seventies AD. Uh, the Flavian dynasty is now in, in play in, in play. So we have a whole new ancient Rome and the beginning of a huge new era of civil of Roman civilization occurring. And Falco, our hero, he's right in the middle of it. And I think the summary will really kind Absolutely. of convey uh, the rest of that as well, of course, as you know, just and the and the main you know big plot points uh, that will then we be discussing in the uh, pipes. Yeah, so let, let's just um, keep our audience waiting and ourselves no longer. We'll slide into your well-prepared and pre-recorded um, summary, and then we'll we'll break it over to the pipes. So th- thanks again, everybody, for joining us. We hope you have a nice time listening and uh, reading along with us here as we discuss the Silver Pigs. And we'll get you back at the other end of Josh's summary.
Rome, 70 AD. The dust has just settled following the year of the four emperors. A little tiff, well, more like civil war, over who would succeed the mad Nero to rule the Roman Empire. Nero, the last of the Julio-Claudians, since Octavian took the name Augustus and put the cap around the Roman Republic, was justifiably named public enemy to the Roman people, and in a grand display of theater, offed himself. Four contenders from across the empire, each supported by their own legion, Galba, Vitellius, Otho, Vespasian, contested for the throne of the greatest power in Europe. In the end, it was the old soldier Vespasian, a ranker-turned-general, who won the laurels. And so the Flavian dynasty begins, and the wariness of our protagonist, one Marcus Didius Falco, continues. Falco has seen 27 winters. Of lowly plebeian stock, he did his time in the legions as a ranker and then a scout in Britannia. And thanks to Queen Boudicca's uprising, witnessed the horror of combat and the result of what an oppressed people, led well, would do to those who oppressed them not to mention scar him with an impression as to what happens when the wrong people are in charge. To further his psychological burdens, his hero's soldier brother Festus was killed in action during the Jewish revolt when he was in service to the new emperor's eldest son, Titus. Festus was beloved by his unnamed mother, and Falco has accepted her eternal disdain of his character for being the brother that survived. Little does his mother know, Falco has been spending his coin to ensure Festus's woman, who was pregnant at the time, the child Marcia, is now three, did not end up in the gutter. Thus Falco has his burdens, he drinks and carouses with the ladies, and makes do as an informer, Lindsay Davis's version of a private detective in ancient Rome. Politically, however, he walks on a tightrope. In an age of imperialism, Falco yearns for the return of the Roman Republic. Like any detective story, even those set in the classical world, a Seamus needs a client. First and foremost is Helena, a pretty but very distressed teenage girl who nearly crashes into him in the forum. For Falco, it's love at first sight. These were different times. But this is not in the stars, as Helena is being pursued by two burly thugs. Falco slows them down with a swift kick, and some upturned merchant stands and brings her to his apartment. It is on the sixth floor of an Aventine Hill insula, controlled by a morally ambiguous gladiator trainer, or Lanista, if you prefer, named Smaracticus. Falco seems to be prescient of future men in his trade, as he even has a finger plate next to his door that may as well say Marcus Didius Falco, informer. Oh wait, it kind of does. Helena doesn't seem to mind the squalor of which Falco inhabits as she tells him her name and how she was kidnapped from her house by aforesaid ruffians. Petronius Longus, whom Falco affectionately refers to as Petro, is a vigili, a cop if you want to dice semantics, shows up, much like the laundress Lenina earlier, and accuses Falco of the proverbial robbing of the cradle. Helena hangs back in Falco's room, reading his middling poetry, while Petronius informs Falco that she is actually Socia Camelina, the daughter of an equestrian, a rich nobleman who made his wealth in trade, Publius Camillus Meto, brother to the senator Decimus Camillus Verus, and Falcon needs to return her to her family, post-haste. With a mixture of passion for the young lady and his own sense of duty, Falco leaves the girl behind at his apartment and heads to the Capina Gate, where the Camillii reside. The senator offers to reward Falco once the girl is returned, an offer Falco accepts whilst pointing out two spies he espied observing the Camillus household in the guise of workers at a bake shop across the street. Camillus Verus sends for the urban cohort and the spies are arrested, leaving Falco to return back to his office slash apartment for the girl. 
but on the way he is accosted by some ruffians hired by Publius Camillus Veto, the girl's father, as well as an ambitious, irascible quaestor, that's at the very bottom of the senatorial ladder, named Gnaeus Attius Pertinax. They have their thugs beat on Falco, demanding him to lead them to Socia. Falco is released to retrieve her, but returns to his home to find the girl vanished. A mystery that is quickly resolved by the spick and span presentation of his household. His mother has been. He finds Socia, safe and well fed at his mother's, as Falco endures the busy household of the Didius matriarch, including his mother and sisters and their children, Petronius Longus arrives. It is implied that Socia is no longer Helena and that she needs to return. But Falco and Petronius want answers. They learn that Socia has been taken from her house via sedan chair to access her strongbox at an office in the Forum, a strongbox of which only she has a set of numbers required to open it. She agrees to take Falco and Petronius to the strongbox. They use a wagon to obtain said strong box and step into a wine shop at a secluded table to open it. Inside they find a silver pig, that is, a single 200-pound ingot of lead filled with silver ore, one that Falco and Petronius recognize 100% as from the mines of Britain, the old legionary stomping grounds of their youth. For safekeeping, Falco, with the assistance of Linia, the laundress, hides the silver pig in the urine bucket used by tenants of the insula, who donate daily, sometimes thrice daily, doses of piss for the Aventine dyers as a necessary ingredient to bleach the togas worn by the higher esselange of Roman society. Falco returns Socia to her family, but she does not want to part from him. Her only friend besides Falco is her cousin, Helena Justina, who is living with her aunt in Roman Britain, coincidentally enough but they keep up their correspondences. However, it's clear that she wants Falco to, to be her friend as well, probably more than just a friend, as her gift of one of her jet arm bangles attests. With said bangle now visibly on his person, Falco heads to the lockup at the Capena Gate, where he learns his spies have been released. Chasing his lead, he bribes the guard about any information on the silver pigs, and comes up with the story of a drayman who found a silver pig and was later found drowned, floating off Tiber Island. The story was is that the Drayman was pissed drunk and stumbled off the edge into the river. But from the Drayman's girl, Astia, Falco discerns the Drayman found a silver pig and was soon visited by the Praetorian Guard, that elite force of legionaries created to protect the Imperial family. It was they who confiscated the silver pig from him. This leads Falco to Julius Frontinus, a fellow soldier with Falco in Britain, now a Praetorian captain. He escorts Falco from the Praetorian HQ to a quiet wine shop near the Viminal Gate. Falco learns from Frontinus that the silver pigs are being smuggled into Rome for possibly the express purpose of financing a coup against Vespasian. Fulfilling the high-placed police bureaucrat role, Frontinus tells Falco to back off the case. But Falco will have none of that. Falco sees Senator Camillus Verus and chews him out for the political subterfuge, knowing that by helping Socia, he is helping the pro-imperial senator protect the emperor. He ran to Camillus Verus, and storming out, he pushes back on Socia just as brusquely. Falco's feelings have become more ambivalent to Socia, and he knows that such a match with he and Senator's daughter could never be, not to mention that he is angry at being a political pawn. He brushes her off somewhat cruelly, hoping for her own sake that she will take the hint. But as the author says, he does see Socia Camilla again. He learns that she has disappeared from her household again. He rushes out to her, but Shamaracticus, his Lanista landlord, has unleashed his gladiators on him, reminding him that the rent is due. Falco wakes up after the pulverizing, but it's too late. He is escorted by Petronius to a warehouse on Nap Lane, and is afflicted with the sight of Socia's body. Socia has been murdered, bludgeoned, and stabbed in the heart. Despite his deep pain, he attends the girl's funeral. 
Camilla's Meto, her father, gives a typical Roman eulogy, stoic and laconic, honoring her service to her family, but he lashes out at Falco and has promised to find her killer. To add to Falco's consternation, the jet bangle that Socia had given him was lifted from his person during the proceedings. Whilst Camillus Meadow is a closed door, his brother Decimus Camillus Verus, however, is not. He hires Falco to get to the bottom of the corruption and the conspiracies surrounding the Silver Pigs in the hopes this will bring these conspirators and Socia's killer to justice. After a few months' journey, Falco finds himself in Britain, given Roman board at the house of the imperial procurator of finance, Gaius Flavius Hilaris, brother-in-law to Senator Camillus Verus. Hilaris is an amiable, sensible fellow who lives with the nurturing Ilia Camilla, his, da his wife, and sister to Camillus Verus and Camillus Meto. They have two young children and a house guest, Camillus Verus's 23-year-old daughter, a divorcee named Helena Justina, the very same one Socia had been writing to. Immediately, Helena takes a dislike to Falco, believing him a predatory, grubbing opportunist that led her sweet cousin to her death, and is now piling on the family misery by making a profit with the contract he has made with her father. What's more is that she told Falco that Socia had mentioned in one of her letters that she saw one of the ruffians that abducted her go into a house of someone that she knew. Falco rejects this immediately, and increases Helena Justina's suspicions. Falco doesn't do much to defend himself, instantly dismissing her as haughty and blinding himself from the import behind the grievance that was made. But he's not here to make nice with the senator's daughter. Instead, through an ex-centurion named Vitalis, he arranges to have himself disguised as a slave so that he may penetrate the silver mines found in the southwest of the island. Unfortunately, this places him at the not-mercy of one Cornix, a sadist who enjoys beating and the occasional sodomy. While Falco was never submitted to the latter, Due to Vitalis's demand that he may only be beaten so much as to give up useful information, he is beaten. He endures his crucible, however, and is able to get out to Vitalis and then to Hilaris that a freedman Brighton merchant named Triforus is smuggling out the silver pigs. By the end of this operation, Falco barely makes it out alive and is led out to Londinium on a wagon commandeered by Helena Justina herself. She is just as devoted to avenging her cousin as Falco. Triforus is interrogated and gives up some names. Two names in particular are quite significant, though Falco won't learn of this until much later. Nearly recovered from his ordeal, he fulfills the second part of his contract with the Camillii, and that is to escort Helena Justina back to Rome. It's a long journey from Roman Britain, through Gaul, Germania, along the Rhodanus, the Rhone, all the way to Massilia, that's Marseille, and the relationship is complicated. Upon returning to Rome with a wagon full of sexual chemistry, Falco and Helena Justina are ambushed in front of the Camillus household. Falco, with the help of the senator and his guards, fend off the attack. Falco kills one of them and, and leads once his charge is safe inside. Helena Justina appears at Falco's apartment the next day and invites him to dinner at the Imperial Palace. Reluctantly, he attends and he and, he and, and Helena Justina get a one-on-one -on -one with Titus, eldest son of Vespasian and the man to whom Falco's brothers served in the East. They learn that Hilaris' interrogation of Triforus led to a big list of names, including Helena Justina's estranged hubby, Gnaeus Attius Pertinax, the magistrate that had waylaid Falco all those months back. Moreover, Pertinax is the owner of the warehouse on Nap Lane, the same warehouse where Socia's body was found. But as it turns out, the future emperor offers Helena his condolences because Pertinax, locked up in the Mamertine prison, has been strangled. Other prominent senators and equestrians of Rome have been arrested as well, some of them having already fallen on their swords. 
But Titus says the investigation can go no further because his brother, Vespasian's youngest son, Domitian, has been implicated in the conspiracy to overthrow his father. Domitian, of course, innocently struts into the meeting, whistling obnoxiously and creepily. What up, big bro? Who is that? Referring to Helena, of course, and putting sleazy charm into kissing her hand. Of course, the future emperor Domitian doesn't use these words, but he does give off a tell when he's told Helena is the ex-wife of Pertinax. It's clear to Falco that the two names uttered by Triforus was Pertinax and Domitian. Even more curious, the Napoleon warehouse where Socia was found is owned by Pertinax's adopted father. Helena and Falco head home, but find themselves being shadowed by more ruffians, and soon themselves in a chase through the city, ducking into wine shops, bake shops, and finally a brothel to elude their pursuers. They find sanctuary inside a garden stable, the wordplay and verbal intercourse they have engaged in since Falco first entered hilarious household culminates into a literal roll in the hay. Actually, two rolls in the hay if you count the time after they wake up. Having returned home safely and parted ways, Falco has his road to Damascus moment, the original one not occurring too long ago, when speaking to Linnea about her upcoming nuptials to Smaracticus. She points out the laundry list attached to his hidden urine submerged cachet for Socia's silver pig. He has her retrieve the silver pig from the pivat, and the list is a wax tablet attached to the rope that was used to submerge and then haul up the silver pig. The wax tablet bears the hand of Socia, and she announces on the tablet the names of all the conspirators who she saw enter a house familiar to her. They were having dinner with someone she knew. Among the names is, of course, Pertinax, the Senator Gracilis, who offed himself, but at the very top is, you guessed it, Domitian, second in line to the imperial throne. Another curiosity on the tablet is that a name at the bottom has been crossed out, someone she knew. In this instance, we get the story's most powerful moment when Socia becomes a true Roman heroine, not unlike Lucretia in her own way. Loyal to her nation, she may be, marking down even a member of the imperial family, but blood weighs heavily, and she could not name someone very close to her. Her uncle Camillus Verus, her father, Camillus Veto, but she trusted Falco and herself to ensure justice was done. She may not have been able to name her own family, but she knew with this information that Falco would figure it out. Falco finds Titus at the palace preparing for the triumph of his father, really his, victory in Judea and declares that the unnamed other conspirator who held the dinner party was disturbingly one of the Camillus brothers, and that if Socia was killed at the warehouse in so-called Nap Lane, then she must have followed that person there and met her fate. At the triumph, Falco figures out the man who lived in his apartment whilst he was in Britain was a spy placed via Smaracticus, hired by one of the Camillus brothers, presumably. He also hears from Helena Justina, via her maid, who delivers him one of the jet bangles that Socia brandished when she was alive. The one she gave him, the one that was taken from him. He had deduces that Helena had found the bangle in the household of the Camillus brother that Socia was too loyal to name. On a hunch, Falco heads for the warehouse. Once arrived, he finds among the spice containers a way out behind the warehouse where the Cloaca Messina is currently under construction. Spotting a wagon nearby, one that could easily support the silver pigs, he locates an open manhole. Below, he locates a secret storeroom beneath the warehouse where the silver pigs have been stacked high. He also finds Helena Justina and Publius Camillus Meto, Socia's father. Falco puts things together, but not fast enough to be knocked out by Meto, Philip Marlowe style. Falco awakes, Philip Marlowe style, to find himself tied up, Philip Marlowe style, by Meto. Meto is taking Helena Justina as insurance, and is detaining Falco so that his hoods can arrive and transport the silver pigs out of the city. So he's definitely guilty. 
Like a Bond villain, however, he leads Falco so that our hero can escape from the trap, albeit with some lacerations to his wrist as he uses the door and a knife to free himself. He finds Mezzo in the warehouse with Helena Justina, wielding his own knife. A tense standoff ensues and things are said. Mezzo reveals the identity of his daughter's killer. It wasn't him. Even he is somewhat horrified at that accusation, nor is it Pertinax. It was Domitian himself who used a stylus from an inkwell to plunge into the 16-year-old's heart. Falco has Meadow dead to rights, but not enough. As a triumph roars on above, a brutal swordplay begins, all the way up to the moment where Meto has his blade to Helena's throat. Meadow had the opportunity to fall on his sword, like some of his confederates, but instead he is slain by his brother, Decimus Camillus Verus. Brother killing brother, the great Roman tragedy continues. All's well that ends well. The silver pigs are retrieved. Vespasian is so tickled by Falco that he offers to make Falco a senator, but Falco refuses, despite the fact that it would allow him to be able to marry Helena Justina. Instead, he reluctantly agrees to be paid a wage that would allow him to reach the status of an equestrian by becoming a personal informer to the emperor himself. Falco isn't happy about being in the emperor's payroll, but he gets appointed Sally back at the old veteran soldier turned emperor by telling Vespasian that he will be taking Domitian's seized inkwell, the one of which his stylus is was used to kill Socia. Since there will be no trial for Domitian, just an imperial cover-up, Vespasian can only honorably, perhaps with a sense of personal shame, acquiesce to this request. Waiting for Falco at his apartment is Helena Justina. He announces to her his commitment to earn enough to make second rank so that he can qualify to marry her, but it will be a long road ahead. Lots of books to write. She agrees, and they spend the night with each other. Ave, aque, vale. Nice work, Josh. Very, very well done there on that summary. I can say, I'm sure, for everybody who who, who went through that with us, that uh, you've got the plot points and the characters and some of the drama uh, all captured nicely there. Thank you. And it's a good way to start off our third season. A good way to start off our third season with uh, a good plot summary. That's yeah. one of the things that we like about the show is being able to share with each other our plot summaries. And here you go. That's a, a great way to start yeah. off. And just for those who are wondering, at the end when I said Ave, Aque, Valet, that's Hail and Farewell. Just for <laughs> Hail and j- Farewell. Just so you know. Yeah. All right, so let's light our pipes, my friend. Now, I don't have any Roman-flavored tobacco, but, you know, when I think about Helena Justina's warehouse of spice, I can't help, oh, I can't help but wonder what sorts of incredible fragrances might have been there had we had we time and had we resource enough to uh, to kind of make our own. You know, given this is still Imperial Rome at its height, so Egypt is still part of the empire, so I'm sure you can get some lotus leaf imported in. I'm sure it's brought it was brought down into the <laughs> yeah. lower levels of the Subura or of the Aventine somewhere, right? So mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. some in, there's some like uh, insula or some brothel out there that I'm sure where you can get it that we can go get a fix. I would say, why don't we just do what Petronius or what you know, even what Falco did with uh, Frontinus? Find a nice quiet wine shop and. Uh, you know, and and have a few morsels of, of pork or something like that, and and discuss the uh, story. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's let's start then with our pipes. Uh, of course, the pipes is our acronym we've been using since we started the show. P for principles, I for investigation, P for perpetrator, E for environs, and S for the secondary or supporting characters in the story that sort of flesh out the action and the drama. Mm-hmm. So let's start, Josh. Uh, let's start with, with principles. Why don't you talk to me about your feelings on, on this, our man, Marcus Didius Falco? Well, one thing I wanted to address here in the story, especially for a modern audience, uh, 
is that you know? Okay, he's instantly attracted to Helena or Socia, as we soon, <laughs> as, as we soon learn as her name is. Uh, as all Roman, Socia, Socia, I guess Socia? you say Socia. We'll agree on that going forward. Socia, Socia. Yeah. So, okay. so he's instantly attracted <laughs> to uh, Socia, as all Roman men would be, mm-hmm. uh, because their goal back then in a different time from where we live in is that they wanted to find a young fertile wife to bear children because so right. carry on the family and line. So, you know, the author sublimates this kind of creepy in, in modern times, you know, in terms of his behavior, she gives it sort of a quasi chivalric edge to helping her, but you can also see that he's attracted to her and the author is not afraid to shy away from this. Uh, but, but mm-hmm. I think to some viewers, to some readers, you know, it might, but especially modern re- readers who are not familiar with the society, this could probably be, you know, be off-putting. But back then, this was like a, a girl of 16 or and, and upwards. That was a very marriageable yeah. age for a uh, Roman maiden. Mm-hmm. And so... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but she does kind of give a nod to the audience, though, when the certain characters like Linnea or, or even like Petronius are kind of hinting that he's, he's you know, robbing the cradle, per se. But it, it's not yeah. really fully played on. And we know that, and I feel the author did a good job at least showing Falco mature in this story, going from, I guess, a, going from that relationship or that ideal relationship he wanted with uh, with Helena slash Socia, when he actually has a real mature relationship, I guess you could say later on, with the real Helena, Justina, uh, in, in the rest of, of the story. So to me, that was a believable evolution, and that was one of the parts that I liked about the portrayal of Falco's character. He's a surface womanizer, you know, with body behavior, but that's disguised as honorable intentions. Like, he does look out for his dead brother's woman and their child financially, and he doesn't tell his mother this either, and he's willing to put up with her really not caring for him because she obviously loved the other son, Festus, better. But, you know, the author doesn't want to make the character look bad in any way. She wants to make him almost seem like a martyr to all of this suffering that he gets from his family. So Interesting. He has a sense of honor that because he was a soldier and that he was a scout. So this makes him a good informer in Rome, in my opinion. He's a Republican mm-hmm. and he's definitely a reverse snob because he has definitely contempt for the patriciate. And by a Republican, I don't mean, you know, the grand old party, the GOP. I'm talking about like he is a, <laughs> I want to bring back the Roman Republic. That's essentially before, that's what yeah. he wants to do. And that's what many emperors like Augustus, Tiberius, and want to, or even Claudius wanted to do to bring back the Republic. But of course, it was already on mm-hmm. this, uh, runaway carriage like baggage train that just was non was just going nonstop, right? Like there was just no way to go back to the way things are. And Falco is kind of like a deeply conservative yeah. in that fashion. But uh, and, Yeah. I would say that the 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 theme of that um what what you're speaking to, we do sense that in the story. And it's maybe one of the subtler points of the book, which might be fleshed out more as the as the Empire sort of And the expands, series goes on. But this this yeah, this desire that Falco has to um, to sort of maybe not uh, maybe not kind of belittle, but certainly be quite wary of the autonomous figure. You know, just that idea of one rule, one supreme leader. He doesn't believe in it. He thinks power should be back in the Senate's hands, and that the Senate now has basically been reduced to just a ceremonial yeah. job. Right? I mean, exactly. You, you think of the way the senators in this story operate they they have power but only the power that they're able to wield through their own corruption not that 
not any bestowed upon yeah. them by the by the prince. And like basically being a senator is an honorable position because of the nobility of your family or because you have great wealth. But there's not much difference really in, in terms of the Senate of uh, being a Senate besides, you know, the name behind it. And then being a member of the equestrian order, which is basically like just run rank below the senatorial class because you're not like of nobility or have immense wealth or have like, you know, family wealth or property or prestige. You just have a lot of wealth and you can build that way up and to the magistracy to become a senator by being that way. So basically, in the by the empire's time, you can become a citi- uh, like a full citizen, a an aristocrat, not by blood, but by simply you know, whatever way you make profit or glory to get yourself to that point. Mm-hmm. So it, it's right. it's kind so, of a so Falco negotiates that that po- yeah, and, and Falco negotiates that political divide, if in fact we can call it that, because uh, you know the way I view it, it, it's still sort of like. Um, because the Republic is less than a hundred years mm-hmm. dead, we still have we still have this feeling of um, you know there being underground support and sympathies, right? And we were talking about you know how like he's very kind of you know wary about what can happen with the empire. I mean, he served in allegiance, so he was in Britain during Claudius's time, so he very well knew what mm-hmm. Caligula was like, and he was probably aware of what Tiberius did, especially with Sejanus, you know, doing all of the, all, all of his. Uh, nefarious activities back in the day. And of course, so he's obviously, and by the end of the story with, you know, the reveal of Sosia's murderer, he's very, very wary of Domitian. And and, and so so being a Republican Mm -hmm. is even more important to him now. And the very fact too that he kind of likes Vespasian, who is more, much more of like one of those late Republican generals in attitude, like like a Caesar or a Pompey type, who now has political power Mm -hmm. after the Civil War. Uh, the second civil war, yeah. I, I should say. Uh, so he's kind of liking Vespasian as a soldier type. He identifies with him, but Vespasian is also willing to cover up the, the, the very fact that his own son tried to overthrow him. And so they're not going to push mm-hmm. that whatsoever, right? Because, you know, he needs successors to his throne. So it's not like, so it's being handled internally and Falco is, has to deal with, has to basically stand by with the corruption that's happening. So he knows that it is eventually on that slippery slope once again. And so it just enforces mm-hmm. his Republican b- b- beliefs, in my opinion. Josh, what did you think of Falco's engagement with, like, with the environment and kind of other people? Like, I, I've, I viewed that kind of like being very important, you know, in judging his uniqueness. Because unlike Philip Marlowe, who is our closest comparator, I, you know, he's not driven like Marlowe is by a particularly curious sense of righteousness or I just need to just trying to survive. Yeah. But unlike, and unlike Sherlock Holmes, he isn't really interesting for and of himself. Like, I mean, we, we would, we would follow Holmes just to see his idiosyncrasies, but I felt that reading Falco, he lacks this amplify. I don't know if that's the right expression, but like an amplified kind of intuition mm-hmm. or an intelligence or a something. That he, but he does possess a grittiness to see that the good of the everyman is maintained. Yes. You know, and and as you're saying, he's he's a republican in an age of a growing empire, and this perhaps gives his interest um, as he goes against the grain. Yeah. You know, of looking out for his family first. But I do wonder if if as you view him, operate and negotiate his environment you you see kind of that as being his thing like the way he uses the situations the way he he moves through the city uh because he doesn't have 
a weapon of character, like some mm-hmm. of these other detectives that we've studied so far. He doesn't have a, um, well, I say it again, an idiosyncrasy that becomes his own definable trait. He is just sort of like a survivor. He's a gritty survivor, but he's not, and, and he's not a particularly polished man no. either, you know? Um, I just, I mean, he's literate. I struggled in he reading his character. He's, he writes yes, poetry. He, and, he does. He writes and stuff, poetry. And he's definitely, I think he, I think what he's looking for is some measure of happiness in his life. And he just deals with, with, with the shit that's thrown at him. Like his brother's dead, who is the favored son. So he has to deal with his, mo- his mother's contempt and disdain. While at the same time, she does kind of care for him still because she's still his son. But then he can't, mm-hmm. but, but yeah. he also feels a sense of pride that, you know, he can look after himself. He wants to look after his family and his dead brother's family. And, you know, he's loyal to that and he's loyal to those old ideals of, of family and stuff. And he's wary of, of people in power and stuff. And he's wary of the, and very kind of contemptuous of, of the aristocracy. And I, I do find like the mm-hmm. traits that, sh- that he's given because of, of his relationship to other characters. I think that's what kind of paints the picture of the character of Falco in this story so far. Okay. But yeah. like, so therefore it's like, it's almost like as if when you read a Sherlock Holmes novel or Marlowe novel, you, they have their clear objectives on what they're doing. And, you know, like, Mar- like we, yeah, we know Marlowe wants to make a buck and earn his, earn his living, but you can see also how invested emotionally he gets into each case that he's in, even if it's mm-hmm. unintentional, it does happen. And that does happen with Falco to an extent. He does lack, I would say, definitely those selfishness, I guess you could say, of Holmes, for example, who just is more concerned about the case than all the emotional details that surround it. But so it's kind of a blend of both a little bit, but I would say more so closer to Marlowe than to Holmes. But then, of course, later on, like the whole, like he's met, there's a whole sequence near the end when he's confronting Mato and he's basically saying, you know, oh, well, I noticed you pulled this out with the uh, jet bangle and all that sort of stuff from Socia that that Helena gave him because she found it in the household and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, it just seems like, that was just another example of, oh, well, here's a scene where the great detective is going to, going to show everything that he knew so far. And I found that kind of scene mm-hmm. kind of forced a little bit, that little one moment. But overall, like, I felt like he was just reacting to what's happening. So I agree with you. There is no real drive to him. And he's just kind of reacting to elements in the story. And if you like mm-hmm. that, in a, because in my opinion, it, this might go into the investigation in terms of the writing. I think this was this, the story of Didius Falco is more about a detective in ancient Rome than it is about a detective who lives in ancient Rome. So this, the, this okay, the, I understand so, it. Yeah, I understand. So the setting mean. kind of takes over. I think his character, and so he just reacts to everything going on as a character in that time would. But that kind of takes precedence over to me uh, the portrayal of his character, which slightly weakens that portrayal in my opinion. And then I'm forced to kind of see him with all like these detective tropes I'm very familiar with. So I get kind of a sketch of his character, but I don't really get the meaty details of him, I guess you could say. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like there's less, I find, per- yeah. and I feel like th- in, that she really finds difficulty in kind of showing flaws in Falco. Like the only thing I can say, if you agree, I don't know if you agree with this, uh, is I have this one particular flaw and I'll get to it, but I just want to let you finish that sentence there when I just cut you off. Sorry about that. No, no, it's, it's okay. fine. I was just, I, I, I've, I was just picking up on, well, I asked you the question at the outset. And did I answer about, that? I probably didn't. If did this, I? if this is, <laughs> 
Well, you did in a roundabout yeah. way, and then you got right back yeah. to it. I asked you if 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 reading Falco as a reactionary character to the people and to the environment is the way we have to view him as a principal because he lacks that personal um, idiosyncratic drive that some of these other detectives yes. have. You know, I've got a thing. Uh, I mean, outside of writing poetry, which he hides from people, I don't think there's anything that he has yeah. that's special or unique or makes him an interesting guy on his no. own. But I agree with you. Like, the writer has to build settings because this is a character who is living in a city which is supposed to be a character in yes. the story. So if if ancient Rome and its environments are not built effectively and are not conveyed with sort of emotional and descriptive wealth, then I think Falco falters mm. a little bit because he's not an interesting enough character for me he's to very jump tro- at. He's very so, tropey uh, if what, you think what, about I, him. Like he's he is one very part Sherlock Holmes, I guess he's I, one part Marlowe. I mean, there's even a James Bond aspect to him. I mean, let's just talk about like, you know, the similarities between a, a stable, a stable scene in this book and a stable scene in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And it's, and it's, they're very similar in that fashion, if you think about it. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of are. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 They are, they are quite similar. I had, I hadn't really, I don't think put that together, but no, you're absolutely right. They're, they're very similar and they serve a, a similar function. And I wonder if uh, Davis was kind of drawing on that sort of Flaminian uh, idea, you know, of, of the two characters running and getting stranded. You know what? You're probably spot on. There probably is something there, but it's very, yeah, it's, who knows? It's, it's, but, it's a know, sketch. I, it's a sketch. And to, and here's the, here's the sketch, thing too. Yeah. And I'll go back into yeah. this, goes back into the investigation, I think, but I think it also lends credence to the arguments that we're having about Falco is that this is the first in a series, this book. And so I feel like through this novel, like, yeah, we're getting a mystery being told here, but it seems to me we're also establishing characters and future relationships and dynamics that are going to be used throughout the series. Like to me, this book Mm -hmm. introduced Falco, this book introduced Helena Justina, this book introduced Camillus uh, Varus, this book introduced, you know, Mm -hmm. Domitian as kind of the big bad of the series. You know what I mean? So to me, this kind of, this this sort of feels like it's like an introductory book more than a standalone mystery novel of of an ongoing series. It's not like one episode where we focus on one, uh, a certain, like we're not focusing on the detective himself. We're focusing on the world this Mm -hmm. detective lives in instead. And that I think could be, you know, a drawback of reading a story set, uh, reading a detective story set in, you know, in in a different time period than what we're normally used to, where the where the typical de- detective yeah. conventions, you know, going from, you know, like the 30s, 40s, all the way to the present day exist and are very clear to us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, from the outset, any success this book has is going to depend on the reader's interest in this time period and and the writer's ability yeah. to convincingly and, portray and, the backdrop. And, and Davis has yeah. to portray that. She has to make... Uh, she has to do two things. She has to make, you know, the his, the historical fiction lover uh, just, you know, gobble up every detail of Rome that she portrays in there. So she has to be vivid about it. She has to be very descriptive and she has to create the sensation that or the, that you are in ancient Rome. And so that's one of her main focuses in mm-hmm. her writing. And that could, again, take precedence over the character who simply reacts to it. But I will give this uh, devil's advocate in terms of, you know, where you feel like, you know, there, there's a missing idiosyncrasy or drive to Falco compared to the other detectives, I will say, and I think this is why I give him a somewhat decent mark in my pipes at the end, is mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he's the detective with the the traditional Roman family values that he has to, you know, blend, he has to make work with his job. 
And so I find that, I think that's what's consistent about his character that he's writing, is that he is basically a traditional Roman individual living in that time. But to be a detective and to someone in his trade, he also has to work with that and, and all the family developments you know, to make him stand out between mm-hmm. other ones. Like, they could have just easily have had him be like a loner guy, like Marlo, living in the Aventine in his... Se- I mean, he even... Like, you he, he, he walk upstairs. Like, he literally has a Marlo-esque office. Like, he's in... Like, she basically turns, like, you know, a Los Angeles apartment building into, like, an Aventine insula. Uh, and then, you know, and he, he's even on the sixth floor. He has, like, a finger plate that might as well say, you know, like, Marcus Didius Falco consulting detective or something like that, Right. And there's even a scene where, like, Helena walks in. It's almost like, you know, your client's here or something like that. And his mom is his secretary who cleans up everything for him, you know? So (laughs) you get those kind of connections. And uh, I kind of like that. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. you know, I can also see how people found that tropey. But, yeah, yeah, I do agree there is a cookie-cutter quality to him. You know, she's trying to create a detective within ancient Rome. And because he has the detective traits, he seems anachronistic for the time he lives in. So he doesn't quite fit as a standalone detective character, and he doesn't quite 100% fit in his setting. And I think that's one of the mm-hmm. of the things. Now, I do point out that one defect I did like, and we'll go back to his, I don't know if you agree with me on this, is that, you know, his kind of his reverse snob, his contempt for the, for the aristocracy, is that this prejudice allows him to dismiss Helena's accusation of Socia telling him that she knew one of the conspirators. Because remember, she confronts him in their first kind of meeting together in uh, in Londinium. Yeah. And he and she tells him, no, she told you. And he said, no, she didn't. Uh, and, uh, and so mm-hmm. for all the time, mm-hmm. she's thinking that Falco is an opportunist and even a traitor because he's pretending that didn't happen, that, that he used Socia yeah. for his own liking. And he is too blind of how haughty you know, that he thinks that she is, that she's treating him with the t- typical aristocratic contempt for someone of his class, that he dismisses her and those accusations until he realized at the very end of the story that this was plain in his face all along, right? Because then he finds the wax yeah, and tablet, he just didn't right? See it. Exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. and stuff like that. So I did like I did like that part in the writing. And I think that again is another part of the writing I found strong. Uh but again it still feels Yeah, like- I mean that that, that was a moment mm-hmm. That was a moment lost in translation because she, in her letter to her cousin, she said, Sosha said to Helena that I had told him, but realistically she hadn't said, I left it for him on a wax tablet. No, she didn't. I, no. Yeah. But 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 maybe she didn't also want to give, maybe she thought maybe, I don't know, that maybe Meadow was reading her letters or something or, or something. Yeah, the letter could have been intercepted. Possibly, sure. yeah. I mean, how and we didn't know Hilarious at that time. We didn't know how trustworthy he was either, right? But um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we can go back into the supporting characters, but because I don't want to consider Helena Justina a principal, I think she's a supporting character, in my opinion. But she, she, yeah, I think I, I agree. So I don't want to talk about his relationship with her. I think until we get to the supporting characters, do you agree with? Do you agree on that, or, or do you think if you have any points on their relationship, what did you think of it? Do you think it, it helped build his character at all, or or did or do you think it was kind of built up this whole sort of? tropey thing of like you know the detective character and the girl and maybe even like a james bond aspect that she was trying to give him or something that just didn't quite work for the story i felt it was tropey um and i thought it was i thought it was quite heavily signposted as well you know that the resistance to him as a figure in the beginning and the cold sort of coldness that she has you know i mean I, i got all of that 
Yeah. Um, I, I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, just because I could read into it didn't, you know, it's a generic convention. I didn't have a problem yes. with it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why people flock to read genre literature. Yes. So, and that's one of the reasons people why we're ship, doing this right? is to investigate. Yeah, of course yeah. they do. So I didn't have a problem with it, but I could certainly see it telegraphed from a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just want to, like... I, I don't think it, it, it hurt his character's development at all. No, I don't think so. Any more than, you know, um, Carmen Sternwood did with Marlowe in The Big Sleep. No. I, I don't think it was that big a deal. But um, I do want to pick up on this idea of anachronism that you mentioned a few moments mm-hmm. ago. Um, because as a principal figure, Didius Falco is cut from the same cloth as other lower class or lower middle class detectives Mm -hmm. with moral compasses. Like he does have a moral compass, making him a Republican and with those family values that you you speak of and his lost brother and his sort of feeling he has to look out for his niece and all of that. That's all very honorable. And I like that. And, you know, uh, I I just think that, and maybe it's because I've been spoiled, maybe, maybe because We've got Holmes, we've had Bond, we've had um, Marlowe. Maybe because Falco has no particular skill or power, maybe that makes him immediately, for me at least, a less compelling character uh, hero. But I also have to admit what you say as as quite truthful. And maybe this is something, Josh, that we're going to deal with throughout the whole series because we're reading first books. Yes. Um, but this this is a first novel. This is the establishment of a character. We haven't seen the character's arc. We haven't perhaps been revealed to everything we're going to see with this character. So it's maybe a little unfair and premature of me to criticize the text for not offering me something special or kind of interesting about Falco. I mean, he is a survivor. He is gritty. But he was just a little less interesting for me mm-hmm. to follow uh, than some of these other detectives that I've read in the past, because he didn't seem to have something that other people really mm. liked or other people really commented on. You couldn't read him from the other characters mm. who, like Watson, like Watson says something about Holmes and we're meant to say, yeah, that's what we should feel. Or someone says something about Marlowe, like, Marlowe, you're a dirty dog. Mm. Oh, right. Okay. This is what people think of Marlowe. People just sort of I mean, the characters do talk about Falco, but not in any way that would reveal his his great survivorship or his great skill or talent in his work. He's just sort of like a dude that does this in the city, and we could probably be following any other number of them. So I thought he was okay. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't bored watching him, but I never once thought what's going to happen next because... Um, he's got this thing that might or might not help him. I was just kind of watching an Indiana Jones type character Mm. who wasn't as interesting as Indiana Jones because, (laughs) you know, he didn't have a whip or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, I I got you. No, I I think it was, I think she presents a sketch of the character that she wants to develop in this story. And, you know, I like those tidbits that I was fed. Um, I, uh, but, but as a whole, I, I come to agree with you. Like, I think there was some, there were, there was some aspects of good development of his character in here that kind of intrigued me a little bit, but there really wasn't enough Mm -hmm. in there to like, to me to get a full understanding of him as a man. And there was too many parts in there that were kind of forced or telegraphed, as you said, that it just seems like the writer is trying to push this character as opposed to, you know, just allowing this Mm -hmm. character to breathe, I guess you could say. Yeah, like that section where he reflects on his time in in Britain, you know, and he talks about the difference between um, between the general in charge and um, like kind of his disgust rather. I don't know if it's worth reading a bit of this, but I I just got a little section here and it, 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 this is part of his characterization, I think, which is 
a little forced. <laughs> I served in the second at Isca at the time when Paulinus, the British governor, decided to invade Mona, Druid's Island, to clear out the rat's nest of troublemakers once and for all. Paulinus left us at Isca, guarding his back, but was accompanied by our commandant among his advisory corps. We were stuck, therefore, with an incompetent camp prefect named Ponius Postumus, who called Queen Boudicca's revolt just a local tiff. When the governor's frantic orders arrived, informing this half-wit that the Aicini had swept a bloody swathe all through the south instead of herring off to join the beleaguered field army, either from terror or further misjudgment, Posthumus refused to march out. I served in our legion when its glorious name stank. Not your fault, remarked my new colleague gently, reading my mind. I said nothing. After the rebels were annihilated and the truth came out, our, our pea-brained camp prefect fell on his sword. We made sure of that. But first he had forced us to abandon 20,000 comrades in open country with no supplies and nowhere to retreat, facing 200,000 screaming Celts. 80,000 civilians had been massacred while we polished our studs and barracks. We might have lost all four British legions. We might have lost the governor. We might have lost the province. Afterwards we witnessed what the barbarians had done. We saw Camulodunum, where the huddled townsfolks had melted in each other's arms during a four-day inferno at the Temple of Claudius. We choked in the black dust of Erylamium and Londinium. We cut down the crucified settlers of their lonely country villas. We flung earth on the burned skeletons of their strangled slaves. We stared back in shock and horror at mutilated women hanging like crimson rags from the trees in the pagan groves. I was twenty years old. That was why, when I could, I left the army. It took five years to arrange, but I had never had any second thoughts. I worked for myself. Never again would I entrust myself to orders from a man of such criminal ineptitude. Never again would I be part of the establishment that foists such fools into positions of command. Mm. You know, I, I just felt like, I feel like that's a bit heavy-handed. Like, like my guy because he didn't like the way the Roman army behaves. Like yeah, my character because he doesn't like killing and yeah, barbarianism. The like stuff my was guy. Good. Yeah, the know? descriptive stuff before that last part was good. Oh, yeah, Because yeah. it explained, you know, his contempt, you know, and, the, and, and for the commander and for the whole mm -hmm. situation as a whole. But then at the end, she kind of just like, she's so heavy-handed, as you said, it's ham-fisted at the That's very right. end. Yeah. Like, the last couple of mm -hmm. lines did not need to be in there, in my opinion. Like, she could have ended it in a different way, but she wants you to get into this character, right? And she, I seem she's a little, because I think this is her first published book, I think that she's also probably a little insecure as an author on whether or not her character is going to be understood. And I guess that's kind of, uh, she, she's playing a tightrope where she has to make a character interesting for historical readers, but also for casual readers. So, you know, I get her situation. In the end, though, um, objectively, mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't really affect my mark for the, perp uh, you know, in, in the pipes, but I understand it. Sure. Me too. Me too. And again, I, you know, I'm not trying to levy too much tax on Lindsay Davis and what she did here in this first novel. It, it, it might feel a bit, um, it, it, it might just feel a bit unnecessary, you know, or insincere on my part, but I don't think it's insincere. Hey, I, I read the book and that, that's kind of, that's kind of how I yeah. felt, you know, but I, I appreciate it's tricky to do that when you're trying to build the character of the city and the world and historical fiction, you know, McCulloch, I'm, I, I'm going to care. I'm going to compare her writing to McCulloch. Um, and her characters, because that's my point of reference. Right. But I, she doesn't have the same palette to work with. And McCulloch had a ready-to-made, um, you know, story. Yes. Anyway, my my mark for my mark for Falco was three. I was at three as well. I was veering okay. towards three and a half, but uh, there was just there was just a, you know I liked I liked I liked him, but I wasn't like blown away by him. Um, however, 
If there was, say, some way for me to get into the series that didn't involve me having to say, you know, read all those books, like if there was like a TV show of Falco, I would probably watch it. But is that more mm-hmm. based on this? Yeah, fair, fair Based point. on the sketch of the character that I have and, of course, the setting that, you know, that he uh, inhabits. Mm-hmm. So investigation, I know we've kind of already talked a little bit about it, but let's just uh, finalize our pipes on that point. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start basically. Overall, I did like how the plot unfolded initially, especially the lead up to Socia's death. Uh, there was a good introduction to character. There was uh, there was a little bit of suspense, you know, leading up to the moment of her murder. And then I found once you get to the Britain, uh, the, the, the British section, it's. I think that section could have been a little longer. I think there could have been a little more development, particularly for Helena in that situation. Like her gradual turnaround to Falco, it seemed a bit rushed to me. And despite you know their time on on that return journey, which I think was intentional to justify their later hookup. You know, mm-hmm. you know, a little length, a little sure. more intrigue in Britain, I think would have gave the mystery some weight. Also, she could have had some fun really kind of as a British, as a, as a British novelist writing in the, in the mystery genre, I think she could have explored some Holmesian sim, like settings in ancient Britain, you know, at that time, or kind of made it feel that way as a little bit of kind of a nod, like a, I think it would have been a, way, a great way to make the story more fo- like familiar to other to casual readers and then she could have found other ways mm-hmm. to like you know build up character in that fashion and i think the british section needed I more agree. development i wanted more of falco in the mind mm-hmm. um, in disguise doing what he was doing i wanted more of that yeah you know i wanted to see more conflicts mm-hmm. and i wanted to see helena gradually warm through warm with warm to him throughout the series i personally i would have preferred that they were just like sexual tension friends by the end of the story as opposed to consummating their mm-hmm. relationship a little, you know, halfway through, you know, it, it occurred. Like, I just found that part a little bit unbelievable. I have my own reasons why in terms of, you know, what I know about Roman society and civilization. I just, just I mean, I know that she's a divorcee and those are considered, you know, back then in ancient Rome, in the Republic, late Republic or even Imperial Rome, a divorcee. She didn't have a man controlling her or a father controlling her. So, she, you know, she makes her own way in the world, I guess you could say. They were deemed to be a little more promiscuous and almost allowed to be by society because she had already been divorced. Um, That's right. So, but it's still just the idea of her being almost like a Bond girl, like halfway through. I just felt that just what I don't know that just didn't work for me, and I felt that like the British section would have been a great way to develop their relationship a lot more. Like she rescues him, Mm -hmm. and he and he's recovering from his injury and stuff, and she's there. But like, what was the turnaround for her? Is it because all the stuff that he did in the mines to and suffered and all the suffering that he went through that crucible? Is that the reason why she turns, she slowly turns around on him, realizing that he is the real deal? He did care about Socia and and, and their whole situation. And he wasn't an opportunist. Like, I wanted to get that moment in the story from her character, but we only get it through Falco's perspective. So we don't really know. And there wasn't really any hints towards that. Except, of course, you know, they had a, they bickered back and forth with each other. And that's inevitable in all these stories is that when you bicker back and forth and have sexual tension, you're, 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 you're going to eventually <laughs> pair up, right? Do it. Ex- ex- exactly. <laughs> do exactly. It. I mean, it's a standard convention. Yeah. 
Uh, it is, yeah. And th- this story follows the conventions. And just, I think, to call it out, Josh, because we've mentioned it a couple of times, the, the Bondian scene that's so familiar to us here as James Bond readers and fans is the scene in On Her Majesty's Secret Service where James Bond has escaped from the villain's lair, if you will, down the hill in Switzerland on skis, and he finds himself um, quite frantic and worried and pursued, of, uh, being detected yeah. by the henchmen. Yeah, being pursued through this sort of ice festival, this sort of uh, winter carnival sort of thing. And the girl who he's kind of chasing, um, the the sorry, the girl, the love interest in the story at the time, um, daughter to kind of like a wealthy, <laughs> not a senator, but daughter to a wealthy mobster. Uh, mobster yeah, uh, Tracy. She rescues Bond and drives him to a barn to hide out. And it's in the barn that Bond recognizes what he's got and who he's dealing with. And his life isn't going to get any better than this. And if they ever come out of this, let's get married. And you can see, uh, you know, stroke for stroke, the same thing's happening here in this novel when they go to the stables. So I think, I think the more I think of it, yeah, perhaps Davis is, is uh, borrowing a little bit. Yeah. But maybe, maybe not, maybe not. But, Let's talk about, so yeah, that's what I felt about the middle section. Um, now the part when they get back to Rome, that was a little bit rushed as well, but I did like the intrigue going on. I felt though that uh, maybe Domitian and Titus, they should have been introduced a little earlier in the story, but I, I did like the intrigue involved in that and stuff, this, despite that chase sequence and sex sequence. Uh, but then of course, mm. at the end, there was very, I found, I found the climax a bit disappointing. Like the, we get the whole Camillus Meadow reveal in an exposition dump and I didn't find myself, you know, invest really invested in his motives. Oh, I want to be rich. I don't want to, you know, like, uh, like if, yeah, if he had yeah. if he had wanted to be like bring back the republic, then that would have been really interesting because that would have put a that would have probably put some moral conflict into Falco. And I think that would be really interesting to explore. But they didn't really go in that direction. He mm-hmm. just wanted to be rich and powerful, and and by doing that was yeah. the only way to attach yeah. himself to you know the prevailing party of this conspiracy, right? The twist of Domitian as Socia's killer is interesting, you know, and I think we're setting up future novels, but beyond Meadow's death, for sure, beyond Meadow's death, you know, by his brother Varus, everything is all covered up and that fits the nature of the story. Um, but I, again, I go back to the Helena relationship, that forced culmination, uh, that seemed a little anachronistic as we discussed. It also felt like, I think it kind of ruined her development a little bit for me. Like I felt like it was out of character for her to do so, so early in the story, like, it, it just kind of seemed like, uh, I, I don't know, again, it's a little forced, a little rushed. And I do like the cover-up aspect at the end, you know, it's very much like, you know, a very kind of crime saga thing, like The Wire or something where the bad guys win at the end and you got to keep going and, and still work the beat, still, you know, still, right. still yeah. fight on, you know, like no matter what. But... At the same, yeah, there there will be no there will be no justice because Vespasian ultimately, as the emperor, he's not gonna he's not gonna d- get rid of his own son, and that's just what we're left with, right? What did you think of the idea of that Falco turning down, you know, all that that senator's commission essentially, so that he could marry just Helena if he wanted to, but then he turns it down and he says he wants to make his way up, you know, and and so he's going to be paid as an informer by Vespasian. He feels like he took probably the lesser of two evils there, but he wasn't happy. And I do. It's kind of interesting the idea that you know, like he's they're they're now lovers by the end of the story, but he can't marry her because he can't. Af- he's he's just not 
He can't he afford can't, to be, he can't afford yeah, to be right. your husband. And because of, he has to get out of the class that he's in now and he has to save up to do so. Mm-hmm. Right. So she's almost the mm-hmm. ultimate prize. Yeah. And I just don't like the idea of her being a prize, but I do like the idea that, you know, it kind of, I guess it impels his character. It gives him a, a momentum going forward to the next novels, a goal, I guess he, he wanted to attain, you know, so that he could be with his love. Mm-hmm. So he'll do whatever he can to do so uh, in his job, in, in, in his work going forward. But we don't get that, what, you know, that drive, as you said, in this novel, we get that sort of uh, underlined at the end of the novel. And so to get what we wanted yeah. from this yeah. character, we have to then deal with that in future novels. I, you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a setup at the end of this story, but I I think it's a it's a tease. But I think it's important though that we call out here that the misogyny is not Davis's, and it's not a trope of the genre. No. She skillfully, and I do like this part. She skillfully made that part of this world, and so this is one of those places I think where she has succeeded in giving her character not an artificial conflict, but an actual conflict. He wants to be with Helena. Okay, well he's been named an equestrian, but he's got to earn the four hundred thousand sesterces yes. in order to get married, and and that's that's not her being a prize no. because the writer is playing a misogynistic trope. No. That's, that's and, and, and that was what I was trying to say. But I'm just trying to say is like, yeah. I prefer yeah. as her character personally, you know, that, you know, that she kind of has this way of interacting with him. But then of course, how does she interact with him being someone of her class? Unless, she, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Davis sets that up for us as, as a goal, you know, so that he could eventually be with her. So it's kind of a little bit of a catch twenty two in, in my sense where I like it and I don't like it. So, but 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 I, I understand why it was set that way. Yeah. But yeah. overall, I found the over like uh, there was just parts of the story and the main plot and the, the I guess the main arc of the crime itself and the conspiracy that was just a little too convoluted and a little too conveniently put 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 together at the end of the story for my liking. Uh, like yeah. I wasn't able to kind of pick up on the pieces very well until like near the end of the book in this story. I just felt like I was just watching Falco. I'm really glad boun- to hear you say I that. Just, I just felt like I was feeling Falco being bounced around, you know? I'm really glad to hear you having said that because okay. as I was reading this, I was, th- I was thinking the exact same thing that this story, the scheme to steal silver. Okay. But then there's that thing about overthrowing the emperor and that's never really been quite clear. And obviously the silver being placed inside of the lead ingots, that, that makes sense being shipped to Rome. Yes. Pertinax, uh, Helena's husband, ex- ex- ex-husband being, being the merchant. Yes. Being the merchant, of course. Yeah, I get that. But then there's all the Domitian plotline, and there is a lot that's just sort of thrown together here through Meto's character. At, and I just felt like it was really mishmash, fast, fast, give me the chase. and More setup. It's it's not exact. More setup. Yeah. yeah, give me more setup. But, you know, this isn't Colleen McCullough, and she doesn't have a ready-to-make historical story that she needs just to decorate and borrow. She is setting it as a fiction within a real place and time. So there's, there is serious skill here, yes. but there's also serious shortcomings that a writer who has more historical plot to deal with probably wouldn't have fallen into. Definitely. Cause she has to basically use historical characters, but she has to use them in a way where they, where they develop the story, um, where they serve the story. And she also has to ha- deal with mm-hmm. her own fictional characters. So she has to create a whole new yeah, she she basically has a, a different palette to work yeah. from than, say, someone like McCullough or other historical fiction writers. 
Yeah, so I, th I thought that the investigation was passing. Mm. I never read any section of it and was really thrilled um, as I was reading it. I was interested in some of the relationships and I was interested in the Londinium and British scenes, yeah. as I think we're meant to be. Um, but I, I didn't really find much of the Roman stuff terribly compelling. Um, my favorite scenes in the investigation were the little ones with the supporting mm. characters like Lenya and Smaractacus. Smirac you know, I... I like I liked some of that stuff and the a little more than what I feel as though were I, big for me I was supposed to be liking. Like I, like I've, in Londinium when they go to the uh, when they go to the I like how they describe Hilarious's house as you know as like it's it's like almost like an apartment yeah, complex for sure. and but he goes yeah. in there and what I liked about in terms of the character what you said exactly is it's the little scenes to me of Roman life that you catch throughout the story with the other characters that I really found compelling. Uh, I did like the the kind of the, the portrayal, the vague portrayals of say like of of uh, Vespasian and Titus as well. Uh, Domitian to me was kind of like very like okay, so he's like a he's the bad guy. We get it, right? But I did like the ambiguity of Vespasian and Titus Caesar and how she doesn't portray them as like larger than life characters, so to speak, on the page. Like they're just who they are, living in that world, right? In the position that they're in. But they come off like real people in the story, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, like larger life characters that the authors, some authors wouldn't even, they'll say like, oh, that character walked by and the crowd was in awe or something like yeah, that, right? Yeah. And that doesn't happen in the story. So I did like, I did like that. But overall, like, if you mm -hmm. think about, say, the, you know, stuff that were very kind of not really exciting, like the showdown with Meto and at, at the end with uh, mm -hmm. Falco, that was very passe. Like, like, it was just like a knife mm -hmm. fight in a warehouse, you know, like it was just kind of like... I've been here before with Mar with with uh, Chandler, and it was just much better. You know what I mean? <laughs> like <laughs> totally. It was there wasn't much. Yeah, if that's the climax of the novel, it's pretty dull. Yeah, ag agreed. Uh, but like you were saying, we've got more interesting things going on with Falco working in the mine, which we're not getting a lot of time of. I think we only have two or three paragraphs of him actually being a prisoner thrown in that cell mm -hmm. before Helena comes to rescue him. And that would have been more interesting to see played out the way that a Fleming might have played it out mm -hmm. or a McCulloch might have played it out or, you know, whatever. But I, I went 2.5 for the investigation. It, it was really just lukewarm for me. I, I, I enjoyed being there. But I oh were you wow okay I thought you would have liked it a bit more than me. No, I two point five I think is 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 fair. Uh, I was just really unsatisfied with some, just how the story turned out. Like I, it just it just wasn't what I expected. But also like when I thought about it afterwards, I just there's just it was too conveniently all cut. Like I I just think it could have been done in a better way that would have given me suspense throughout when I'm reading it. You know, like I'm reading this, uh, you know, for our next episode. As of right, right now, I'm you know I'm reading that or that Stephen King novel later. Uh, spoiler that is our next episode is it's a, it's a Stephen King book um and just in general about how I feel about the writing and the suspense I feel throughout it, it's just so different compared to in this story where like I'm just more interested in how the story will turn out as opposed to I'm not sure. living in the yeah. moment of each of each page and for the Britain mm -hmm. section mm -hmm. I kind of wished I had that because to me it was a much more yeah. perilous situation yeah. than he had back in Rome uh when, when he gets yeah, when absolutely. he gets back there uh Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's I I, I think two point five is fair. And let's right. we we've already talked about a little bit about Domitian and about Meto. Let's go into the perpetrators. 
what was your feelings on okay, that? Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go here. Yeah. I'll, I'll go really quick, pal. Um, because we've already spoke about Domitian, I mean, Publius Camilius Meto is the other guy. I know Smaractus is a perpetrator, but only in a very minor way yeah, as a landlord. Exactly. And I don't think we need to go into that. But, you know, I gave the perpetrators a two and a half. Now, I know that that's a low mark. And the real reason I did it, I think, and this is perhaps going to be um, a problem with this character and his conflict against the Empire. There is no really interesting villain here for me. I think if we were reading, I think if we were reading the entire series, we might get more, a variety of different people. But for this starting book, the the target in the novel seems to be systemic. It's not really personal. And I mean, I mean, there's people behind and within the chain, but none that are really drawn with much detail. I mean, for instance, Meto is a horrible guy, but because of what he did, not because Davis makes him particularly interesting, right? right? Like his actions, not his character. He's, yeah, exactly. His behavior is rotten. It's it's not like the way he's drawn or the way he's decorated. His actual presence in the story is meh. You know, or I mean, even and, too. and that makes well, exactly. we barely know. And this him. makes the big the big. This makes that climax, that knife fight in the warehouse, just kind of underwhelming because it's not like <laughs> it's not like Spider Man and the Green Goblin no. or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if, if it was Falco re- versus really Dominion, it would be different. But we know we're not going to get that, right? So it's just so disappointing, even in yeah, that regard. Yeah, yeah. So I I don't think we we're having because because it's not like a great hero villain story. It's not a great climax, and it's not a terribly interesting uh, or easy scoring for or sorry or generous scoring for the perpetrator here. I mean, I, two and a half. I think that might be a bit generous because it, it is. is a systemic problem. It, it's the empire. It's the empire and its autonomy and its corruption that Falco's got a problem with. It isn't any, like the little people aren't rendered interestingly enough. Mm. The, the links of the chain are not interesting as, you know, well, whatever. I think I've made my point. Haven't <laughs> you, I? you have, but still, I, as I said, yeah. uh, that was yeah. very generous of you, 2.5. I gave it a two. Uh, okay, Dominion right as on. a killer. So a failing grade from you there. I like it. But yep. Meadow and Pertinax were born underdeveloped. If if I think if she <laughs> had really developed born, yeah. Meadow and Pertinax a lot better, uh, sorry, if if she had developed Meadow and Pertinax uh, w- with more depth, uh, like make him a, make him like a loving like he does have that speech about his daughter and stuff like that that was very stoic and Roman. And at first you're like, okay, he's just a stoic Roman and he's you know he's dealing with his daughter at her funeral at all. He's not showing too much emotion. He's showing his you know, the sadness of her death and stuff like that, but he's being very formal as all Romans were. And maybe inside, you know, mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, he steals the bangle or from him or Falco suspects him that he did, then that kind of indicates that maybe it was just a piece of, and the way that he comes after Socia, he's actually, sorry, he comes after Falco at the funeral. It just kind of, is that a, is that, is that a grieved father who blames Falco for her death and he's emotionally overwrought or, or mm-hmm. is he simply self-projecting, which he is, uh, but of course but even is, yeah. then, like, and Davis attempts to do that with him. He's even horrified at the idea, you know, that he, that Falco accuses her of killing him, uh, of, of killing Socia. But even though we know, even though, but, but, but he, of course he reveals that it's Domitian who did it, not him. But at the same time, you know, is that enough for development? And I just don't think so. And Pertinax uh, definitely should have been more developed in my opinion. Like we we get that taste him at the beginning as not a nice guy. And then we learn that he's Helena's husband. And so we understand Helena a little bit because of that. But and then he but then he's killed before we know it, right? And it just comes out of nowhere too. Like 
like using Titus Caesar as an exposition bot to the next part of the story because that reveals all the senators who are involved. Like the pieces are there and they fit together in most cases, but is it exciting? And that's kind of where I feel like it falls behind. Yeah, it is. I know it's a podcast and people listening, they can't see, but everything you're saying, I'm just shaking my head. It, it just isn't exciting for me. Um, and I, you know, it, it's not exciting and a story doesn't have to be exciting as long as it's character rich, but this one isn't character rich either. And so I feel myself grasping to hang on to something that's going to take me for a ride, but all I'm doing is searching my mind instead for, oh, right, that part of Rome. I remember when I was there and I saw this or that mm-hmm. or something else. Like, I, I'm not Member really... berries. You're, you're, it's like the nostalgia is coming to you. And that's really all. It's <laughs> Member just nostalgia. Berries, yeah. yeah. It is, but and I, that's why I don't think it's going to offer as much for someone who doesn't have that context or the interest. Yeah. You know, I'm, I could be wrong, but um, it's it's not poorly written, but the perpetrators are dry and the conflict is is rather, uh, you know, it's systemic. It's a systemic conflict. Um, you know, that's ultimately what Falco's problem is. His problem is he's a Republican in an, in an empire and the people he's chasing are just, you know, the products of a system that's, allowed it to grow corrupt yeah, systemic corruption. allowed them to grow corrupt i i like that yeah. i've underlined that here in my notes and uh i feel that uh that it was definitely the true perpetrator there but was that exciting as a villain mm-hmm. that's another story altogether uh mo- yeah. moving forward well en- enough for me to go a half mark more than okay this. well there you go I'll, I'll accept that yeah now i gave it credit the last two sections of the pipes the environs and the supporting characters these are actually my highest marks of of, of uh the silver pigs um Okay. As a, you know, as a preface, I gave the environs three and a half. Uh, okay. What did you give it? I, I think just to kind of begin things here. Yeah. Well, well, I gave it a three. Okay. Um, I, I, I could see that she was making an effort to bring, to bring some places to life, particularly the triumph at the end, which is supposed to be the set piece for our big climax. Um, but watching the family on the scaffolding, drinking and sort of, you know, trying to avoid the police officers and the vigilies and whatnot. I found that a bit more interesting, the actual fight in the warehouse. Yeah. So I liked, I liked the, the environment building that she did do in some places, you know, but I agree with what you're saying. The Londinium stuff and the Britain stuff, you know, we didn't get a chance to world build that much within Rome or in Britain. Like, why not introduce me to one of the wine merchants? You know, why not bring me into a shop or an apothecary or a clinic or something where I can hmm. see a different internal space? I felt that there was a dearth of internal spaces here and the ones that we did see were just kind of described in generic terms i liked going different places and i did like certain features of environment Mm -hmm. here the weather i thought was nicely rendered i did think there was a good particularly in the roman sections there was a good mention of like shade and sun and shadow and night and the sounds of the of the city like i like very paid by numbers like uh yeah uh, mystery yeah Yeah. writing you know just set in ancient rome is really what it is and that worked and that was effective mm-hmm. that's why you know i give it a decent mark um yeah. R- yeah britain was it could have been much much more rendered than it was uh, in terms of the terrain and landscape like i'm just thinking like particularly she lives in england you know and so she has yeah, the opportunity I mean, that's what I was to travel too. and to go into detail on that i mean there's a great uh series uh with the historian dan jones if you can find it on youtube i forget the name of it but he's basically surveying all of the roman roads across uh england and he goes to all the different uh areas of like of roman britain you know and following the, the roads really through it's really great and so she had an opportunity 
opportunity to do something like that to really make us feel that British section mm-hmm. and make it work and describe, you know, the landscapes of her country back in that time, you know, and make it very vivid and interesting compared to, you know, yeah. Imperial Rome with all its civilization and its towering insulae and its you know, it's, it's, it's great hills with its palaces on top versus, you know, the rugged terrain of England, the moors and, and the silver mines and, you know, like the very newly put together colonial outpost in London and, and stuff like that that's been, been established there, right? Like, she, she had an opportunity to really go in that different description, uh, but she never, she never did. I did love the portrayal of the Roman households in terms of the layout and how the family interacts, like... Just when Falco is goes sits sits, sits with the um, uh, with Hilarus and his family, you know, and you have like Ilia Camilla like uh, sitting like sitting on the on the on the on the on the couch, and she has her newborn in her lap, playing. You know what I mean? Uh, playing with it, and the other daughter is playing, and the other kid is playing with uh, Helena, and then Falco's sitting there, and just how like they established just like all these living spaces so well that captures things together, like. Like Falco's mother's apartment with all the daughters and the children in the in one room and mm-hmm. Petronius there, and mm-hmm. then they're also feeding Socia as well. Like that whole cramped living space. Yeah, yeah. If you think about, you know, HBO's Rome and Verenus's apartment on the Abatine, like we, you know, where uh, him and all his his wife and his daughters lived, right? It that was just so like captured that feel for me very well in the story. Yeah. So. I did like the triumph. I wish it was the idea of cross-cutting between that and the big showdown was a bit more dramatic. I think she had more room to play with that, but she doesn't. Because uh, again, we talked about that in terms of the perpetrators and the, and the investigation, how that wasn't really effective uh, in the end. I like the kind of the cliche uh, detective's office, you know, that Falco gets, you know, apartment slash office, the Roman version of it in Insulae. That was kind of cute. So... Overall atmosphere I found was a strong part of the story, but it could have been a lot better given the, given the, given the series and the opportunity for description. So I give it three and a half. Yeah. And I was at a three. So you were a little bit above me there. How about the secondary players? I was pushing for a four because I really loved the supporting characters of the story. But again, we just get morsels of them. So I'm going with three and a half for my mark with the supporting characters. Okay. I was just behind you on a three there. I did think that there were some interesting characters. Like, for example, as the series goes on, I'm sure we'll see more of Lania, and I'm sure we'll see more of Smaractus now that they're going to be married. And I think that's going to be nice. That'll be be Um, a very interesting conflict that I look forward to because obviously uh, Falco hates uh, Smaractus and he's kind of like a bully over him in in a way, right? But at the same time, like, could they become sort of like a bond developing between the two, right? Because Mm -hmm. obviously Mm -hmm. Linnea is somewhat fond of Falco in her own way and will that soften Smaractus towards him or and whatnot? So that would be yeah. really int- that would be really interesting to see you know some detail and he's a lanista as well so we're going to probably go through the whole like are we are we going to kind of go into kind of Spartacus yeah. the TV show territory where you know if you think about John Hanna's portrayal of Batiatis on that are we going to go into detail of what a lanista does and what how gladiator schools work and stuff like that so that's an interesting road to go down for sure um i really liked mm-hmm. i thought Camillus Verus in his own little in small way he was stretched out he was stretched out very good he's willing to help Falco right away about about Socia. Uh, I kind of like the development, the, the friendship that they're developing, you know, and he seems to approve of him and Helena Justina in his own way. And he does come through with the save. Does, yeah. So I do like Varys. In, I do like Varys in the end. He seems like a good guy. 
Uh, Petronius Longus, I instantly liked. He's like your classic Eddie. He's like a, it's like a, 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 a Bernie Oles kind of character, basically. But he yeah, is. no, he really but is. Yeah, I did enjoy him. Like he was like a, a particular like vigilly, right? Like he was like he's your average, I guess. Uh, cop character i guess you could say that helps the detective along in his own way right even frontinus was like Mm -hmm. that police captain saying like stay the heck out of this falco don't get involved you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i kind of like that Mm -hmm. uh hilarious i really liked and his family i thought they were rendered well i also really liked um, hilarious was good i I also really liked the just the just the small parts we got of so so shia that whole thing about like man when she like she named all the conspirators. She was brave to keep that secret and and that burden as you know, Socia as um, Davis mentions in that paragraph. And then just the sadness, the fact mm-hmm. that but she still is so loyal to her family that she can't name her father. She scratches his name out yeah, on yeah. there, and that was just mm-hmm. really sad. And that really captured, I think, the character and also like the setting at the, uh, and the time that that took place. You know, and and how that affected Falco. That was one of the real powerful moments of the story for me. It's one of the only powerful yes, moments of the story. Exactly. You know. So and and why was it? Because it it just it, it appeared in the reader's mind the same time it appeared in the character's yes. mind. It wasn't sort of ham fisted or it wasn't pigeon forced into it wasn't forced into us like, you know, you should feel something here. It's like the character discovers it and we react to it the same way he does, which is that yeah, she knew of her father's guilt, but that no is honorable thoughts. daughter couldn't that's it man that's it so that was good and that was very contextually accurate and appropriate and we we buy it as a plot point but also as a very believable characteristic um as for the flavians uh uh, uh vespasian titus domidian uh, they were fittingly ambiguous they weren't presented as i said before mm-hmm. larger than life they were kind of bureaucrats in their own way but they came off the page quite well they weren't overdone in my opinion they were they, they, they were sketched out pretty well that they needed to be for the story uh, but Let's talk about, I think, the last part of the supporting characters that we were going to talk about in the principles, but really, I don't really think she is. Uh, I like Helena Justina as a concept. Uh, actually, I really love her as a concept. Um, but I found the mm-hmm. author rushed their relationship, and in my opinion, that betrays her character. Uh, I kind of feel like they didn't need to consummate that relationship. Um, you know, they they just they, they just they could have put more stakes into it, you know. Make her just like like him by the end sure, of book yeah. one, or hint that there's some friendly rivalry. Mm-hmm. I know we mentioned that before, but you know, I just kind of felt that uh, there could have been a lot more done with her, and like the beginnings of her is really good. I mean, she could develop she could develop into a really great character, um, but I found that she was just a little too rushed in her relationship with Falco, and I think it would have served her as a character better if that didn't happen. Do you agree with that? Mm-hmm. I do. I do agree with that. Um, I, I thought she was a good character. I don't mind, as I said earlier, I don't mind the tropiness of it, of her as like a Bond girl figure, of her as like, um, even as it kind of becomes like a Girl Friday to a certain extent, mm. you know, a, a little bit more where she kind of plays along with him. But I don't mind her as a love interest, as a figure in the plot. She's she's of interest, you know, the, the ex-wife who therefore is available and honorably so insofar as you can afford her. Um, I don't have a problem with any of that stuff. I think that it'll be interesting to see how she evolves as a character throughout the series. If we were to go on and read more of them, I'm sure she would take on more of a role, more of a partnership role, perhaps. And I would like to think, because the story sets up for it, that Falco manages to get that 400 grand and, uh, you know, and get her. Because she makes it quite clear at the end of the story that she's going to wait for him. Yeah. 
I hundred, I hundred percent. She says, she says that. She says that. She says she will. Anyway. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was already that moment of, I guess, uh, what's the word, reproach? I guess you could say when you know he thought like they play her like. Davis kind of like at the last minute plays her as a red herring that like after Falco gets knocked out by Meto, because uh, he basically Falco is able to get knocked out because Meto plays on his relationship uh, with her by making it feel like he that she betrayed him, and that's and that's what allows mm-hmm. him to get you know uh, incapacitated, and so. The fact, you know, that she, that he thought that of her at that one moment, that's going to kind of maybe haunt the characters a little bit. And I'm wondering at the next book or so, that's going to be explored a little bit more, right? So they might kind of like mm, go back yeah, to more yeah. of an uh, equal footing and uh, then maybe redevelop that relationship or explore it in a different way that maybe it'll have, it'll be more meaningful and more, and serve yeah. the characters a uh, bit better as opposed to the plot. Well, your, your score then, my good man. 14.5 out of 25 for the scoring index on the Silver Pigs, which is about a 58%. Uh, so it's a pass, mm-hmm. but not what you would call a strong B, if we're going to use yeah. <laughs> the teaching scale. Actually, you could say it's a questionable C. Yeah, it's a questionable C. To be fair, though, I will say that this book probably feels more like grade-wise, if I were to grade it you know, right now, I would say it's probably like a, a C plus to a B minus for me, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, f- I feel the same yeah. way. But yeah. with, with our pipes rankings, you know, we go with the way that it is. And, you know, compared to other books mm-hmm. that we read mm-hmm. so far, it kind of, it does fall into that ranking. But so you just got to kind of adjust, does, I, yeah. I think, our scores in terms of what they mean compared yes. to what we think of as A's, B's, and C's, and D's in, in, in yeah. that grading system, right? Particularly this season, buddy, because we're going to be looking at so many first books in series that, you know, it um, we, we're going to have to take our scoring particularly this year, yeah. I think, with a, a grain of salt. Not a grain of salt, so. but just a more careful investigation. I, I feel so. And we, so, we, um, we have more time to explore individual books uh, in that fashion, too, to how we really yeah, feel about yeah. it. So that's a really good point. This was a really good guinea pig book to start on. It was something that of a time period that we, you know, we're very... Uh, that we find, you know, very enjoyable to read about and uh, passionate about. And, you know, overall, I liked it. I enjoyed it. The big question about this book, though, you know, in terms of, of this season that we're doing, would you try out the next Falco novel? That is the big question that we're going to be asking ourselves. Would I, do I like the Silver Pigs enough to want to see what happens next? And my answer is no. No, I don't. I'm kind of, I'm feeling the same. I'm not compelled to read the next book. Uh, however, if, but then again, you know, I read a lot of stuff. So if it falls upon that the second book is a lot better, mm-hmm. then maybe I would continue with the mm-hmm. series. But it's 20 books long and I just don't feel invested in these characters. And, and especially like I just read, I, I've read stories about ancient Rome in this time period that to me are far more intriguing um and yeah. and better written in my opinion and are more compelling to me than than, than this series now i will say though well, if this was ever adapted into a tv series i probably and, and it was made well i would probably 100 percent watch the series but read the individual yeah, you did, books yeah you did mention yeah but reading the individual books though like because i was reading that uh bbc radio did like a production of the silver pigs and uh, and Falco mm-hmm. was played by a really great British character actor, uh, Anton Lesser. Um, and I can see him in that role, especially when he was a much younger man back in the 90s, too. Now, Lesser, a lot of people know from, uh, he was like Thomas More in Wolf Hall. He was the mad scientist uh, Meister in uh, Kyburn in, in Game of Thrones. And he's been in other stuff, too. So, you know, like, I can see if they get a good actor in this role, 
uh, for, for like an adapted television series for Netflix, Amazon, or what have you, and they get a good budget, I think it could be a compelling series to watch if you're into that time period, into that period drama, right? So, but yeah. I would, as I yeah. said... But you're, you're, go, you're going down the pipe. You're going down a pipeline because there is no TV production. Exactly, this, exactly. And we've only got the books. We've only, so, got, we've only got the books to deal with. Yeah, my point is that, you know, on a curiosity basis, I would like to know what happens next, but not enough for me to read me too. 20 books. Me too, You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't read the next one, which could put me on to the, the swing of these texts. Mm. But my problem is... If each of these books is cut from the same cloth of, you know, character up against a system that he doesn't like in terms of I'm a Republican and in heart and all of these people. (laughs) Yeah, but well, I I mean, yeah, but if I don't get a good villain, I'm not interested. Mm. And the thing that Marlo was up against corruption in Los Angeles, but the people who came out of that corrupt system were interesting to read about. Nobody in the Silver Pigs really stood out as a fascinating criminal. And because of that, I'm watching one guy, you know, like King Lear screaming in the storm. Like yes. He's arguing against the system and he's he's going mad and getting angry against empirical, you know, design, which or imperial design. And that's not something that ultimately is going to give me, I know I made a joke of it, but like that Spider-Man green goblin thing, I want a villain that I can care about. I want someone I'm interested in, not one guy fighting against a system that's just going to crush him because it's bigger than him, you know? And, and I'm, and I'm speaking, I'm speaking of how Vespasian is going to protect the mission. He's going to protect Titus, you know? I mean, that that's just what's going to happen. So either, I, I don't want to follow a character who's flawed because he, he can't get over his own nearsightedness. Yeah. To me, um, he does, he's not, you know? To me, the, I think the exciting part of the story is, that would interest me more is when Domitian comes into power and how Falco deals with that. Because obviously he's going to also Dominion will see Falco as an enemy. I 100% see that happening, and so I'm really curious mm-hmm. to see once they get to Dominion's reign, which I believe they do get to. You know, that's the part of the story that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in Falco, you know, surviving and doing his thing, you know, during the time of of um, uh, you know of. Uh, Vespasian. Uh, Vespasian and Titus, I'm more interested in what's going to happen with Domitian, because to me, that's when the real conflict will occur, and that's when the real stakes are, are going to be. Like, what will Domitian do to Helena Justina, or to Camillus, or to his family, you know? Like, what, you know, what, 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 what is a man in the, who is obviously tyrannical, what is he going to do with this kind of power, right? So, yeah, yeah. And there's a good chance that some of our listeners have already read subsequent texts mm, and are shouting, at us, are shouting at us now or have thrown their, <laughs> their earphones across the room uh, in, in frustration because they know that the series gets better. If that's <laughs> yeah, the we're case, very let sorry, us know. By the way. Give us, <laughs> yeah, give us an email at lightingpipes at gmail.com. Give us an email. Let us know uh, that we should you know, continue yeah. to pursue, let, hit us up on Instagram, catch us on the socials. Let us know that Lindsay Davis's series gets better. And by all means, we'll, we'll give it a, we'll give it a whirl because I am interested in seeing what happens, but not if I'm watching Falco fight the empire, that's not going to be of any interest because he's not going to no. win. History has told me that much. Exactly. So he need. I, I need, I need, I need uh, a Spider-Man villain in here at some point yeah. or a bomb. You need villain, your Norman Osborn Green Goblin. You need someone who yeah. has connection totally. to the character yeah. that will affect his life, right? Bingo. And I think Dominion is that character. Bingo. And I was curious to say, yeah. like, do we I get to so. Dominion? Yeah, maybe. And then it gets much more interesting. That's that's where mm-hmm. I'm coming from. Anyways, I think yeah. uh, we gave the Silver Pigs its due today. That's for sure. <laughs> we have indeed. We have. Indeed. Now I kind of hinted earlier. What do we have next on the plate, Scott? 
Yeah, next up, we're uh, we're going to be reviewing Later by Stephen King, which is his third and most recent publication for the Hard Case Crime Hard Case Crime House yes. <laughs> publishing house or publishing line, I should say. <laughs> yeah, the covers are really great. Yeah. Like they're very classic, like uh, pul- yeah, very, pulpy, very pulpy, very pulpy. So the previous one he had was mm-hmm. was Joyland, and before that was the Colorado Kid. Yeah. So this is King exploring right. the crime genre in his own Stephen King kind of way. Now this may be his third book. Yeah. Uh, for this series, this is actually my second Stephen King novel, and I know you've read much more than I have. So I'm curious to see what perspectives oh, wow, okay. you know we're going to have going into later when we explore it mm-hmm. later on. Well, I did read later later on. I did read Joyland. I read Joyland uh, a few years ago, and I really really enjoyed oh, good. it. I haven't read the Colorado Kid, so I can't say how his um, his relationship or his liaison with hard case crime has started. But I can certainly say enough from Joyland that he he does bring the supernatural in, and there's an awful lot of. Um, there's, there's certainly crime, but it, it's crime in a Stephen King. Book, yeah, you know? yeah, and that's, that's, exactly. That's the joy. That's the that's joy. the joy. So you know what you're getting. But that, that is for later, isn't it, Josh? That'll be our next episode. Indeed. So thanks, everybody, for joining us here for The Silver Pigs, kicking off our third series on Lighten the Pipes. We hope you've enjoyed the show. As I said a moment ago, let us know. On Instagram, you can find us at Lighting the Pipes or email us at uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for, uh, for staying in touch. We really appreciate the feedback and the comments. And we're looking forward to the season ahead, and we hope that you are too. Yeah, guys, uh, as Scott was saying, any comments about Falco, uh, if you want us to continue the series, you know, give us a reason why. Uh, Wet our appetites. Uh, we'd be happy for you to do that. Check out our social media, Instagram, and uh, be back with us next time when we uh, take on Stephen King. Cheers. Cheers.